Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. It's a place to have Catholic conversations with Catholics from the heart of the Church. I'm an evangelical convert to the Catholic faith, and one thing that I learned while I was journeying into the church was that so little of what I knew was what Catholics actually believed, and so much of the information that I had was secondhand and inaccurate. And so my goal here on the Cordial Catholic Podcast is to present information about the Catholic Church from reliable, accurate, actual Catholic sources in a cordial way. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Steve Ray. Steve is a fantastic, highly sought-after speaker, and today we're talking about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. Is it just a sign or a symbol? And what did the early church believe? We unpack my journey and Steve's own journey, which is chronicled in his book, Crossing the Tiber, as we try to figure out what to believe about the Eucharist. It's a fantastic conversation, and Steve does one thing really, really well in the dialogue we have here. See, the Eucharist was something that the ancient church believed in. In fact, the Catholic Church has held this same belief for over 2,000 years. Steve digs deep into the early church fathers to highlight this. And in fact, no one believed that the Eucharist was merely a sign or a symbol until the Protestant Reformation. I mean, those that maybe believed that were considered outside of the church, heretics, not Christians, non-Christians, non-believers. It's really fascinating to think of that, and that's one thing that led Stephen, led me into the Catholic Church. Do we believe that the Eucharist is what the early church believed it was? That the whole church believed it was for 1,500 years? Or do we believe that it's merely a sign and a symbol, which is a rather modern idea, only 500 or so years old? It's a really interesting challenge that we're posed when thinking of it that way, and Steve does a fantastic job unpacking that. I'm extremely grateful and blessed that Steve was able to find the time to appear on this episode of the show. He was a hard guest to track down and pin down simply because of his extremely busy schedule. Him and his wife, Janet Lee, pilgrimages all over the world. And if you check his website at catholicconvert.com, you'll see a schedule posted there. He's literally home for a couple of days every month. So I was very grateful that he fit us in. As it turns out, Steve threw in some earbuds and grabbed his iPhone and took me for a walk for an hour as we chatted about the Eucharist, the ancient church, and our own conversions. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope it was worth all the effort to track him down and get him on the show, and for all his work fitting us into the schedule. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a great conversation about the Eucharist and frames it so, so well. Steve is an incredible communicator. And I hope you're as blessed with this conversation as I was with having it. Listen and enjoy. Welcome back to the show. Uh, I hardly know how to introduce our guest this episode, um, but if you're uh, one of our non-Catholic listeners, there is a chance you haven't heard of Steve Ray. Steve is a convert to the Catholic faith. Uh, Raised Baptist, Steve was a passionate evangelical Christian, studying the roots of his Reformation faith in Europe, and even helping with his wife Janet to smuggle Bibles and medicine into communist countries behind the Iron Curtain. When one of Steve's close friends became Catholic, Steve and his wife began exploring the early church themselves in an effort to prove him wrong, and instead, Steve and Janet joined 
the Catholic Church in 1994. Steve's first book, Crossing the Tiber, Evangelical Protestants Discovered the Historic Church, began as a letter to his father to explain his conversion, and has gone on to become one of the most fundamentally important conversion stories out there. Steve has gone on to publish a number of other important books, including Upon This Rock, The Papacy, and Faith for Beginners. Steve is the mastermind behind the Footprints of God video series, going on location to follow in the footsteps of important figures from the Bible, a highly sought-after speaker, and a popular pilgrimage leader with an absolutely jam-packed schedule. We are so grateful to him for being on the show today. And Steve, did I miss anything? I think you said way too much. <laughs> when you read that, it's hard to believe that's me you're talking about. Hey, and I was trying to condense down your your biography. That was a lot of work. I think the most important thing that you didn't miss is that I've been married to the same woman for 42 years, and I love her more now than before, and I have four great kids and 16 grandkids. <laughs> that's my proudest achievement. I bet, you know, and that sounds fantastic. Look, so we're going to talk about the Eucharist today, and um, this is a really important topic to talk about, especially thinking about some of our non-Catholic Christian listeners, some of our new Catholic listeners. So I wanted to dig right into it with you, and I guess if readers want to get the, the full backstory to your conversion, a longer backstory, which is a fantastic backstory. Uh, Crossing the Tiber is where to find all of that, the first book you wrote from Ignatius Press. But could you talk about, so formerly, so you were an evangelical Protestant, um, which I was as well. I'm also a convert. What did you think about the Eucharist um, back as an evangelical Protestant? Well, that's, uh, I, I spent the first 39 years of my life as an evangelical Protestant, and I was never a pastor, but I was an evangelist and a Bible teacher. I taught the Bible in several different churches in our area. And in all the churches that we went to, and I have to say that my dad was called a church hopper, H-O-P-P-E-R, because he would always find problems with the pastor's theology or the way they interpreted certain passages, and my dad would jump and go to another church. So when I grew up, I was in several Baptist churches, Methodist, Reformed, non-denominational, charismatic. We, we had a lot of experiences, but one of the things that they pretty much all had in common was what they called the Lord's Supper. And we as Catholics say that it's a sacrament, that it does something, that there is an act of God that actually relays grace to us, imparts grace to us. In the evangelical circles, it didn't do that. It was just an activity that we did to remember that Jesus died for us, that he shed his blood for us, and we did it only because he told us to. And in my Baptist backgrounds, it was always called an ordinance. It was called an ordinance because we were ordered to do it. Nothing happened there. There was no change in the bread and wine. Actually, it was grape juice and crackers for us. We never had wine in any of the churches. Actually, I can remember going to it was always Guelch's grape juice. But what we did, and, and, and from all the time that I can remember, is that three, four times a year, usually four times a year, every three months, we would have what we called communion or the Lord's Supper. And that was after the service of preaching, after the preaching service, they would, we'd all sit down and the deacon, the uh, ushers would pass around a, a silver tray. And on that tray were some broken up pieces of crackers, kind of like saltine crackers. And we would all take a piece of the cracker. It, it, we didn't go up to the front. It was more like the offering plate going back and forth. And so we would grab a piece of the cracker. When everybody was done and the pastor, then he would stand up and we would all pray. Uh, he would pray for us, actually. Something about repenting of our sins and thank you for giving your body on the cross for us. And uh, reminding that he gave us his body. And that's what the bread represents. Notice the word represents. And then we'd all eat the bread cracker and we'd sit down and another tray would come by. This is a little deeper and it had little holes in it. And in those holes were little glasses, kind of like shot glasses is the best way I can describe it. <laughs> these little shot glasses were in, the, in these little holes in this tray. There's maybe 25 to a tray. And as it went by, we'd take that little glass, and it didn't have wine in it. This was Welch's grape juice. And we'd all hold that stand, 
to the pastor who had begun to pray. And again, we'd thank him. This reminded us that he shed his blood for us. And we'd all thank the Lord for that. And we were serious about this. I mean, it wasn't frivolous, and I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just explaining what we did. And we'd all sip the grape juice. And then Protestant churches have in front of you a little a lip, wooden lip that's screwed to the back of the pew with three holes in it. And each one of those has a little rubber insert. And you would put the little glass in that rubber insert. And then the ladies would come by after the service and clean, pick them up and clean them and put them away for another three months. Now, just so you to emphasize the fact that there was nothing sacred about this or special like we as Catholics practice. My brothers and I, why my mom let us do this, I have no idea, but my brothers and I would run up and down the pews, and we knew that every one of those little glasses still had a little bit of Welch's grape juice in it, so we'd run back and forth and and suck every last drop out of every one of those glasses. (laughs) Why I didn't get some disease, why my mom let me do that, I have no idea. But for me, that was my experience of communion or the Lord's Supper. That's what we practiced, what I knew for the first 39 years of my life. Yeah, you know, and that's a very similar experience to what I had as in the different evangelical contexts that I was in. And I think a lot of our listeners who may be in those contexts or come from those contexts would have a, a similar experience. So when did your thinking uh, start to change about what the Eucharist or what Lord's Supper or what communion was? It didn't begin to change right away. What happened when I was in thirty when I was thirty nine years old, and I explained this I, on my website. I have a talk called the Unintended from Baptist to Catholic: The Unintended Journey, and my book Crossing the Tiber. The last third of it is all about the Eucharist. But it began to change when I realized my friend had become Catholic. Him and I had been best evangelical buddies for twelve years. His name is Al Cresta. Some people may know him from Catholic Radio. And we have been best friends since 1983. I'm dating myself, aren't I? I guess I already did that when I said I had 16 grandkids. Well, anyway, um, when I started to argue with Al about this, it, it began one Sunday, and he said to me, Steve, Sally and I have decided to become Catholics. There was no advance warning for this. There was no preparation. He just dropped that on us like a time bomb. And I said, Al, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're way too smart to be a Catholic. And then we started to argue to try and prove him he's wrong. Well, when I had to attack these issues one at a time. First issue for me was authority, Bible alone, and then Mary, and then the Eucharist, and then how do you, by faith alone salvation, and all of these things that we had uh, that were issues between me and, and the Catholic Church, which I thought was just a big cult, a big heresy. When I came to the issue of the Eucharist, my wife and I did this together. When we came to the issue of the Eucharist, I knew that I had to make a choice, and I had to choose wisely, because there's really only two options. It's like a sliding scale from A to Z. There's not a lot of wiggle room in between. It either is the body and blood of Christ, or it is crackers and grape juice. There's not much room in between. I know Martin Luther came up with consubstantiation and some others, but it's really those two positions. It's grape juice and crackers. And if it is only grape juice and crackers, then let's admit it. Catholics are guilty of idolatry and stupidity. Simple Mm -hmm. as that. If it's crackers and grape juice, we are, and Catholics have been, guilty of idolatry and stupidity. But if it is the body and blood of Christ, the other alternative, and I make fun of it, like I did, we used to refer to it as the cookie Christ, then I'm in big trouble either way if I'm wrong. When I stand before God, I have those two choices, and I have to choose wisely because it's very significant to my Christian life and my hope for eternity. That's what got the whole thing started. And everybody makes a decision on it too, don't they? Everybody makes a decision. Some, like Catholics, say it is the body and blood of Christ, and they practice it. Everybody who rejects the Catholic Church or those who aren't Christians at all have already made a choice about it, that it's just crackers and grape juice, and they will be held accountable for what they believe. I had to make sure I was on the right side of that. So where did you begin to to decide or to figure out which side of the question you fell on? Well, I knew that I had been born with a pair of Baptist glasses. 
my mom and dad had just become Baptist converts. They were pagans. They had never been religious at all. And they got married in the, uh, in the third, late 30s. And they, um, they had the whole idea that it was just the uh, crackers and grape juice. Well, I, I had to begin realizing that I was born with a pair of Baptist glasses on. What I mean by that is my mother taught me the Baptist tradition before I could ever read the Bible alone for myself. And when I did begin to read the Bible alone, I read it through the lens or the tradition of my Baptist tradition through my Baptist glasses. So I realized that I had to, when I'm studying this, I want it to be objective. Once I got to the certain point, I realized that authority was really the issue. And when I started to realize that the Bible alone could never work, has never worked, and will never work, that the Bible was never intended to be used like a Baptist uses it, then I, I had to start looking objectively, and I went back and began to read the Bible verses and the Bible context, try to put myself in the historical context, not read it as an American Baptist today. I wanted to read it in the context of the first Christians who received those letters from the apostles, those gospels, and see what did they hear? How did they hear it? What were they doing? So a number of things happened. I will get to the second one in a minute, and that's the apostolic fathers, because I realized I had to find out what the very first Christians who received the teaching of the apostles and who received the apostolic tradition and the first documents, which later became the New Testament, what were they actually doing? So I went back and started to read their writings and discovered what they were doing was very different from what I was doing as a Baptist. In other words, let me put it this way. That if you took an early Christian, if you took an early Christian from the first century and they, you put them in my Baptist church, they would have no idea where they were and have no idea what was going on. If you put the same first century Christian in a Catholic church 2,000 years later, they would know what's going on and they would know where they were because it's exactly the same blueprint of their mass as what we're doing today 2,000 years later. We wear funnier clothes and have a different language they wouldn't understand, but they would recognize what was happening. So now let me go back even a step beyond that. I've always loved the Bible. Since I was 17 years old, I fell in love with the Bible. And I realized that the Old Testament was a preparation for the new. And I've learned more about Catholic doctrines of Mary and the Eucharist and all of these things from the Old Testament almost more than I have from the New Testament. It's called typology. And in the Old Testament, there are pictures and images that foreshadow or prepare us for what's to come. They prefigured. They're kind of shouting to you, this event, pay attention, because something's going to happen in the future after the Messiah comes and you'll see what it is. And it's so exciting to go into the Old Testament and find these images of what's coming. For example, when they crossed the Red Sea, they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Well, that's a picture, an image of water baptism. And I didn't make that up because Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, that as the children of Israel, Moses and the children of Israel, passed through the water and the, the cloud and the sea, that's water baptism, by the way, and that's being born again, water and spirit. They went through the water with the spirit above them. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so now you have been baptized. Well, that's a picture. The water baptism is a picture of... Uh, you could have seen it from the Red Sea, what was going to happen in the, in the final time. Well, the same thing happened to me in the Eucharist. And when I give a talk, and I do, by the way, if you want to have the whole talk, it's on my website called Defending the Eucharist. And in that talk, I start with the Old Testament, how the Old Testament prepares us for the Eucharist. They should have understood. The early Christians did understand. They looked at the Old Testament. And they looked at what Jesus told them to do. And they looked at what the apostles were actually practicing in the local churches. And they could see the Old Testament being fulfilled in the Eucharist. For example, the manna coming down. That's a picture of the Eucharist. Jesus said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Not like the manna which came down from heaven. If your fathers ate of it, they would still die. But I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. And if you eat of it, you will never die. So 
all of these pictures and images, and I go through a whole bunch of them. So in the Old Testament, I went back and started to look at these images, and I realized they were all preparing me for the Catholic Eucharist. And so that's where it all began, going back to the Old Testament. Then the New Testament kind of came out with a whole new light. And then I started to study the writings of the earliest Christians and found out they were doing the same thing in their churches that we Catholics are doing now, and they would have no idea what the Baptists are doing. (laughs) You know, I do love that picture of essentially hopping into a time machine or putting an early Christian into a time machine and zooming them forward and and plopping them in a couple of different churches and which church looks the most like the early church. I love that idea because you, you, you think... Those were the Christians who were closest to the sources. They would have understood most closely. You know, if it's a game of telephone, they're the first ones on the line. So what they were understanding would have been probably the most accurate, right? Exactly. That's exactly the case. And, you know, and we have their documents. We can read what they're doing. We can read what they're saying. And one of the most fascinating was the early Christians viewed the celebration of the Eucharist as a mystery, and you had to be baptized and in the family before you could participate in that. So the pagans and those outside did not know what was going on during the Eucharist. So Justin Martyr, in about 155, he writes a letter to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, and he says, why are you persecuting us? We are your loyal subjects. Well, he knows that they're viewing what the Christians do and Sunday mornings is very subversive. They accuse them of being criminals. They're eating body and blood of people. They're cannibals. They are incestuous. They are kissing one another. They love one another in those meetings. They're being incestuous. And they're atheists because they don't have any visible gods that they bow down and worship. And Justin Martyr says, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, let me take a moment to explain to you what we do on Sunday morning. And he goes about writing down what they do on Sunday mornings. We come from the cities and the countries side all to one place. Well, first of all, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because Christians today come from the country and the, and the city, and they go to all different kinds of denominations. They don't go to one place. They go to Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Assemblies of God. All the, but we all come to one place. There's only one church. And then he goes through to describe exactly what we do in the liturgy on Sunday morning, even to the point of they bring the gifts of bread and wine, not crackers and grape juice. We bring bread and wine, and the presider, the priest, prays those noble prayers over these things. And what was normal bread and wine now becomes the body and blood of Christ, that food which, which changes us when we eat of it. And, that, and then we all say, Amen. Just like in the Mass, we say amen, and then we all come forward to participate of this heavenly food. This is the Catholic Mass. This is what they did in the first century. I am an honest man. My father told me, Steve, you have to follow the truth, even if it hurts. I had to become a Catholic. <laughs> you know, I both of us, I know, really value our Protestant heritage. It taught me, I know it taught you, a deep love of the Bible. I don't think I'm wrong in, in saying that for either of us. So you you began to read the Bible and, and try to take off those Baptist lenses. I did the same thing with my own um, kind of evangelical Pentecostal lenses. And you began to look at the Bible and you began to look at the early church, how they used the Bible and how they understood these type of things. How did you first come to grips then um, with reading the words, this is my body, this is my blood, based on how you understood it with the grape juice and the crackers and how the early church and, and the Catholic church understood it? How did you come to grips with that? Well, let's, there are four Gospels, obviously. Three of them are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels. And they view it pretty much the same way. If you go into the upper room at the end of each gospel, and Jesus uh, has the, the passion, his, his meal before his passion, called the, uh, the Paschal dinner, it was a Passover of the Jews, but he's transforming it into the celebration of the Eucharist. He's giving us a new ceremony, but it is the same as with the Jews, but it's being tweaked and changed to the point where it's now a sacrament and so on. So in that passage, it's interesting. I I like to um, put myself in 
the shoes of the early Christians, and I like to think I'm reclining with Jesus at the table in the upper room at Passover. Now, one of the things that when I give the longer talk on this, I say that when you have the Passover meal, one of the things that you have to know is that you put the blood of the lamb, you have to kill the lamb, Passover lamb. Two things then you have to do. You have to put the blood on the vertical and horizontal beams of the door frame, and you have to eat the meat of the lamb. And then you leave and go out from this place. So I realize that I'm up in the upper room and the sacrifice of the lamb is about ready to take place the next day. The lamb is going to be sacrificed and his blood is going to be put on the vertical and horizontal beams of wood. But now it's the cross. And you have to eat the meat of the lamb, which is why Jesus said, this is my body and tells them to eat it. And we have two problems, though. You're supposed to have a priest involved in this, and there's no priest. And we don't hear anything about a lamb. We just hear, go prepare the Passover meal. But you had to go first to the temple with a lamb, and you had to have that lamb killed. You get the blood. You bring the blood back to your house. You would have to put it, and the priest had to be involved, and you had to have a lamb. How can you cook the lamb and eat the meat of the lamb if you don't have a lamb? So you have two problems. There's no lamb and there's no priest. But wait a minute. There is a priest, isn't there? Who's the priest? Jesus Christ is the priest. Oh, and there's a lamb too. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. He's both the priest and the victim. So I imagine myself there with him on the reclining a table, maybe next to Peter or John. And Jesus says, this is my body, which will be given up for you. Now, he didn't say, this represents my body. He said, this is my body. I always used to say that the Bible means what it says, and it says what it means, except for here. (laughs) So you have Jesus saying, this is my body. I can imagine myself, Steve Ray the Baptist, saying, excuse me, Lord, I, um, I think you just made a mistake. You said that that bread is your body, and all of us can see it and taste it and smell it, that it's not flesh. It's a piece of bread. So I think that you ought to change your words right now before it causes a lot of trouble. There's going to be a billion Catholics someday that think you really meant what you just said. So why don't you change that and say, this represents my body, and we can solve a lot of problems. Can you imagine me saying that to Jesus on the night when he is giving us his whole new covenant? This is the covenant of my blood. This is the new covenant. By the way, the word New Testament, we say that means the book. The New Testament is not the book. Inside the book, it tells us that the New Testament is the Eucharist. This is the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant of my blood. The New Testament is not a book. It is the sacrifice of Jesus. It is the Eucharist. It only becomes called that name, the book, because it tells us about the Eucharist. So I tell Jesus he made a mistake. Can you believe that? I just am amazed that I would even, and I would have done that too. People who know me know that I probably (laughs) would have done that had I been there with Jesus. I said one time, can you imagine me saying that? And a guy who knows me said, yeah, I can. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'll just wrap the synoptic gospels up with this, that when we read... Uh, later, it says that Augustine writes, early church, that when Jesus held that bread in his hand, it became his body, and he held his own flesh in his own hands. Therefore, we must bow and adore before we eat. And that didn't sound very Baptist to me. <laughs> Something you just touched on there, two things that, that, that set my radar off a little bit, was this idea, first of all, that, okay, so Jesus was God. He would have known that all these years later, Catholics would be worshiping this bread and wine as if it were really his flesh. So like you say, why wouldn't he maybe fix that? Maybe see that a different way so we don't misunderstand him, right? That's that's one exactly. thing. That's one he, thing. What he said and he said what he meant. Yeah, and that's that leads me into the, the other thing, I suppose, which is, um, I did the same thing as an as a non denominational uh, evangelical. We, we we read the Bible literally in in the Gospels up, and but then there's these there's these passages, these sections that we have these Baptist or Pentecostal or Protestant glasses on that we somehow oh that literal reading doesn't apply to this section here. That section he's Jesus is speaking metaphorically. 
in this section, but that's such a that's such um uh an objective thing we decide or, or a subjective thing we we decide right when those glasses say when it's liberal uh, literal and when it's symbolic right exactly well let's put it this way figure that the bible is a square hole my tradition is a round peg which one is going to yield am i going to fix that peg to make it square so that it fits with the bible or am i going to fit the bible to make it fit my tradition. One of those two has to trump the other. The Baptist tradition and the Bible don't fit. So am I going to force my my tradition to fit the Bible, or am I going to fit the Bible, make the Bible fit my tradition? And when I became Catholic, I decided that the, I'm, my tradition and my thoughts have to fit what the Bible says now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just that interesting thing that suddenly, and I had the same experience, where suddenly you take off these glasses and try and read the Bible in a historical context, in in a context that you're not, you haven't been reading it in all this time, and suddenly you see these things you never saw before, and you realize the lenses you were using. You you mentioned um, Augustine as well. He he wrote quite clearly. Uh, so many of these early church fathers wrote so clearly of the Eucharist um, being this real, actual thing. But you know, we I read I read him. I read a lot of the early church fathers. Uh, Athanasius is another one that I would have read as an evangelical. But we read sections or selections of his of his writing that didn't include yep. those sections. Yep. Exactly. I have a friend who studied patristics at an evangelical seminary, and he graduated with good marks in his patristic classes. He became a Catholic. He wrote to that university, and he chastised them. How could I have taken these patristic classes all along and not known that these men were bishops and that they were Catholics? Why did you not tell us that? You only had to study the passages on what the early church believed on the Trinity or on abortion, but you never let us read the problematic passages. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing that these lenses that <laughs> that we uh that we wear. So, so how did you then square um the the non-synoptic gospel? John 6 has the infamous eat my flesh, the we call that the, the Eucharistic discourse now as Catholics. That's another for me passage I completely ignored or I, I don't you know if it were preached on, it would have been preached on in the context of this is just a symbolic representation, even though it, it, as a Catholic now, it seems like Christ was speaking quite literally in that section. How did, <laughs> he was. How did, that's why, how did you that's square that? Well, I love the Gospel of John. It's my favorite. I, I, you mentioned some of the books I've written. I wrote a 450-page book. It's called a, a St. John's Gospel, a Catholic Commentary and Study Guide, and it's 450 pages, and I bring out all the Jewish background. I'm bringing out all the culture, some of the meaning of the words that were used back then. doesn't matter what I think they mean today. What was it read like in the first century? So I wrote that book, and after I became Catholic, it was very exciting because I saw it all completely different. Well, I lead pilgrimage groups, and I take people to Capernaum, and Jesus gave this talk in Capernaum, and I give this talk at the synagogue there that was at Capernaum 2,000 years ago. My favorite place to talk about this, Keith, is not on the air with you. My favorite place to talk about this is in Israel at Capernaum at the synagogue. And at the end of that chapter, John chapter 6, it says, Jesus spoke these words in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I always tell people that right there is where he said it, right here. So I love that passage. And I talk for an hour on that passage alone, so I'm going to have to be very careful here with you, <laughs> since we have about 28 minutes left from my calculations to fill an hour. So I, the, the people had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had received free food. He had multiplied loaves and fish at least twice, once on the west, once on the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And those people, they like free stuff. People love free stuff. Jesus came back across the water. That's where he walked on the water in John chapter 6. And he went to sleep in Peter's house in Capernaum. That's his offices. That's where his home base was and his ministry when he was in the Galilee area. In the morning, all of those people were back around Peter's house. And they were all waiting for Jesus to come out. And he came out and he said, what are you here for? He said, I know why you're here. Because you want me to fill your bellies again. I filled your bellies on the other side and you come here to get more free food. But I'm going to take this opportunity to use this as an example about a spiritual thing that I want you to know, because you want 
bread, I have a bread for you that if you eat of it, you will never hunger again. You'll never have to go shopping again. And they all said, that's cool. Let's get this bread. Give it to us. We never have to go shopping and be hungry again. And he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Not like the bread which came down with Moses in the wilderness, the manna. Here we see the Old Testament. Not like that bread, because when they ate that bread, they still died. If you eat of me, the bread which came down from heaven, you will never die. And the Jews all said to him, there's over 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Imagine the crowd, only 5,000 people in the whole city of Capernaum, and you've got now maybe fifteen or 20,000 people filling that city. And they say to him, show us your hands. Hold out your hands. And Jesus holds out his hands, and they say, those are not the hands of someone who just came down from heaven. You're a carpenter. We know who you are. Don't think you can trick us. You're saying you just came down from heaven. You're Jesus, the son of Joseph. You're the carpenter from Nazareth. And so they argue with him. And Jesus then ups the ante, and he says a new word for eat. Here's the thing. We don't we have a great disadvantage, as I like to say, when we read the Bible in English, because we don't get all of the meanings. Because in the Bible, there are two different words for eat being used in this passage. I have a program called Verbum. Find it on my website or go to verbum.com forward slash Steve Ray. This is the best Bible software program on the planet. And so you just click on the word eat, and it tells you what the Greek word is. So when Jesus says, I am the bread— the word eat is estio, the Greek word estio, which just means normal eating, polite dining. But when they argue with him, then he ups the ante and he changes the word for eat, no longer estio, polite dining. Now the word is trogo. And trogo means to munch, to gnaw, to chew, to masticate. And it's the image of a dog chewing on a bone. And they're scandalized. What are you talking about? You want us to chew and munch on you and eat your flesh? Are you crazy? We can't even eat certain kinds of animals. We can't eat human flesh. That's cannibalism. We can't drink blood even from a cow or a lamb. We can't drink their blood. We have to drain every drop of their blood out before we butcher it and eat it. And you're telling us we have to drink your human blood? And it says that they were scandalized, and many of them walked away. All of them walked away. And I'll tell you what, I, Steve Ray, walked away with the unbelieving Jews because I, too, rejected eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He turns to his 12 disciples. He said, look, they're all going across the field to Chorazim, to Bethsaida, all they're leaving. You guys are the only ones left. Are you going to leave, too? And Peter says, Lord, we have no idea what you're talking about. We don't understand either. We're scandalized too. But what we know is you're not from around here. You're a space alien. You've come from somewhere else. You've come from heaven, from the Father. You've come down to teach us things we could never know with our five senses. And we also know that if we stay with you, even with these hard sayings, that if we stay with you long enough, you help us to understand. So we're going to stay with you because you're the only one that had the words of eternal life. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't say all of that, but that's what Peter really said. <laughs> At least that's what he was thinking. I'm convinced he was thinking that. And so Jesus says that this is what you have to do, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, I used to love it when Catholics brought this passage up to me, because I would wait to get to verse 63. They would go on prattling away about how this was their Eucharist, eat my flesh and drink my blood, not knowing that this is all just symbolic, because in, chat, in verse 63, Jesus concludes his sermon by saying, the words I speak are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. I say to Catholics now, all right, Catholics, what are you going to do now? You just went on and on about how Jesus is flesh. You have to eat his flesh. Or you're not going to have eternal life. If you eat his flesh, you'll be raised from dead. But Jesus contradicts that and tells you it's symbolic because in the end, he says, my words are spirit and life symbolic and they, the flesh, profit nothing. So what are you going to do now, Catholic? Leave the Catholic Church? What are you going to do? What are you going to do if someone sits on the airplane next to you, a Protestant, and gives you that line? What are you going to, how are you going to respond to them? 
I've learned, Keith, that sometimes the verses that are used against us, if we take time to study them, become the Catholics' strongest verses. And this is certainly a case. What did Jesus mean? My flesh, the flesh. What did he mean? The flesh profits nothing. Well, he doesn't mean his flesh. Because when you study that passage, it's always my flesh, my flesh, my flesh, my flesh, my flesh. He never says the flesh, unless you eat the flesh. It's always my flesh, my flesh, my flesh. Then he says the flesh profits nothing. These are two very different things he's referring to. And what is the flesh? What does that mean? Well, if you do use my program called Verbum, and you do a search for anywhere in the Gospels where it says the flesh, you find that one of the first times it's used is in Matthew 27, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're falling asleep, and he said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does he mean by the flesh? He means me as a person, my humanity, my physical being with five puny, measly, little senses, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing. These are very puny little senses, and I can't experience everything of the known universe and of the spiritual world with those five senses. Jesus came to explain to us what was all there, more than we could ever have figured out ourselves. He comes to explain to us, and that's what he means, the flesh profits nothing. When it comes to understanding these deep spiritual truths, these sacraments, my body and blood, you're not going to be able to comprehend that with your simple little mind or that gray matter between your ears and with your five little senses. That's why I'm here to tell you the truth of this thing, and that's when Peter says, we're going to stay with you because you have the words of eternal life. Hmm. So this was a challenging thing for those followers of Jesus. So many of them left, most of them left. Uh, but he anticipates that that challenge that, well, you can't, you can't see... Uh, you can't see the Eucharist becoming my flesh or the, the becoming my my blood, but you not don't trust your senses because the flesh is weak. We can't see all these things, um, right. but it, but it seems like once we take those those glasses off, those Protestant glasses off, we see these passages in the New Testament. You, we see the early church understanding the Eucharist to be really Jesus, like he commanded us to eat his flesh. Why did you decide to stop trusting those senses and to believe what Jesus said was what he meant? Because I know my senses lie to me. My senses lie to me all the time. My senses tell me there are not angels. I've never seen an angel, heard an angel, felt an angel. So there must not be any angels. My senses lie to me about that. I know there's angels now. How do I know? Because God tells us. The Word of God tells us. The Church has taught us this. Even a Protestant has to say that. Well, you know what? My senses do lie to me because I'm looking right now, and I don't see one angel anywhere. So I also, when I'm giving the talk, I take a shekel out of my pocket because I'm always working to have shekels when I'm in Israel, and I say, can I see through this coin? Can I tear the coin or bend the coin? And they all say, no. I said, here, you're a big guy. You want to try and tear it? And you said, no. It's a solid. How can I tear a solid in half? I said, your senses are lying to you about the substance of that coin because that coin is not a solid. Physics 101 in high school tells you that everything in this coin here is made of atoms. Everything is made of atoms. And atoms are tiny little molecules, electrons, I mean, little things called electrons, neutrons, and protons. Protons, and they spin around in space. An atom is 99.9% space. It is not a solid. And that coin is made up entirely of atoms. That coin is 99.9% space. But it looks like a solid to you because we can't see the speed that those atoms are spinning. So your senses are lying to you about the substance of that coin. One more example of why you, you asked why I came to not, to not trust my senses when it comes to the body and blood of Christ. Because when I eat that Eucharist, it certainly tastes like bread to me, and it certainly tastes like wine. I know what blood tastes like. I know what raw meat tastes like. And the Eucharist doesn't taste like blood and raw meat. So my senses, I have to deny what my senses are telling me because I know the substance of that has changed. Just like the substance of that coin, I can't pick it up with my senses. Now, one more story. This is a true story, too. Augustine was walking on the beach, and he was thinking about the Trinity. He was walking, pacing, and he's saying, think, 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 the Trinity. How can one God be three persons and three persons be one God? How can this mystery be, this thing of the Eucharist, I mean, of the Trinity, I've got to figure it out. 
and he notices a little boy with a shell. And the boy digs a hole in the sand, and he goes over to the ocean, and he brings water and pours it in his hole. He goes and gets more water from the ocean and pours it in his hole. Augustine watches him for a while and says, little boy, what are you doing? The boy said, sir, I'm going to take all the water in the ocean and put it in my little hole. Augustine says, wait a minute, young man, stand up and look. The ocean is vast and infinite. There's no way you could get all that water into your little hole. And the boy stood up and pointed at St. Augustine and said, and neither, sir, will you understand all the vast mysteries of God with your little head. That's a true story. That's why I decided I'm going to take what Jesus says, what the Church has always taught, what the Old Testament prepares us for, and Jesus' own words, because he's not from around here. He comes from somewhere else to teach us and tell us things we could never know with our five senses, and that's why I believe it. Yeah, it's a that's a that's a great story. Thank you. It's a it's an interesting thing that the the Eucharist has been believed. We see this in the early church. They take the Bible, Jesus at, at his at his words. Uh, uh, for for two thousand years, we've con- we continued that that tradition. Now, of course, at the Reformation, things things changed, and this line of reasoning, this this the the Protestants. Um, of which both you and I were, began to take the Bible in a different direction. And we had certain lenses we wore when we interpreted the Bible that kind of disguised those sections there, explained them in a, a different way, a not very uh, fulsome way, I don't think. Were there, were there any Baptists uh, in, in the early church? Anyone that believed the Eucharist to be uh, what Protestants believe it to be today, or did that really come about in at, at the Reformation? That was in my book, Crossing the Tiber. I have a chapter on the Eucharist, and it begins with a, a section called A Short History of the Resistance. When and where did people reject the idea that that bread and wine became the body and blood of Jesus? Where did that begin? And you find out that it didn't begin until the Reformation. And I don't call it the Reformation because nothing was reformed. It was a destruction. It was a devolution. It was, if anything, a deformation. And it was the first time where someone, and Zwingli was the big promoter of this, that everything was symbolic. Luther still had a problem with that. Luther and Calvin still had problems with this just being symbolic. It seems so much more important than just crackers and grape juice. But Zwingli, he just was strong as ever, and he said it is a symbolic act, and when I, and most of the Baptists and the Assemblies of God and the Evangelicals we know came out from that line of thinking, that tradition. So there were not, nobody in the early church. I, I love this one example. I got, in my book, Crossing the Tiber, I have pages and pages of quotes from the fathers that demonstrate exactly what we're talking about today, that they would have died for the truth that that bread and wine at the hands of the priest become the body and blood of Christ. That is a fact. There's nobody going to deny that in, for 1,500 years. And let's, let's just point out one other thing, too. All through history, for the first 1,500 years, all Christians believed that. After the Protestant Deformation, then there became a group that denied it. Even today, the vast majority of Christians believe that something happens on the altar. The Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Highland Lutherans, many of them believe that something happens. 350 million Eastern Orthodox Christians believe something happens. The Coptics believe it. All the Christians believe it except a small sliver of the Christian pie, which is called Evangelical Protestants. Only that one sliver, and only for the last couple hundred years, has ever denied it. But all Christians did for 1,500 years, and the vast majority still believe something happened, although for the Lutherans and the Anglicans and those outside the apostolic succession, it doesn't happen, but they believe it does. The only ones who deny it are the small little sliver of the Christian pie called evangelical Protestants, and the only reason we know about them is because we were very loud. The early church did not have the idea that it was just symbolic. I'll give you one example. One of my heroes. St. Ignatius of Antioch. He was a first-century Christian. He was taught not from the New Testament, because there was no New Testament yet. He died at 106 AD as an old bishop, old man already by 106. Where did he learn what to do on Sunday morning? Where did he learn his theology? From Peter and Paul and John. He learned it 
he could say that he had the words of the apostles ringing in his ears long before there was a Bible to carry around. And he said on his way to being eaten by lions in Rome, from Syria, from Antioch, Syria, the Romans took him and he was eaten by lions in the Colosseum in Rome. And on the way, he wrote a letter. And he said, in the, he wrote seven of them. The one he wrote to a group of people called the Smyrnians, because they lived in a city called Smyrna, which is Izmir of today in Turkey. And he said to them, beware of the heretics. Beware of the heretics who refuse to partake of the Eucharist because they deny that it's the very same body and blood of Jesus that hung on the cross. Wait a minute. Did I read that right? Beware of the heretics. What did the heretics teach? That it was not the body and blood of Jesus. It was something different. But Ignatius says that what we do, that Eucharist, is the same body and blood of Jesus that hung on the cross. Therefore, stay away from them. They would be better off if they would learn the grace of God. There is only one altar, and on that altar is the bread and wine that becomes the body and blood of Christ. Ignatius of Antioch understood this in the first century. He's not teaching a new novelty, a new idea. He's not creating a new theology. He's teaching what he learned from the apostles. And that's the whole church believed that. <laughs> that's remarkable that. So I, I suppose that the, the, the Baptists, the Protestants who believe that the Eucharist, the communion, Lord's Supper is only symbolic, they do make an appearance in the early church, but they're the heretics, right? They are the heretics, and they were condemned as heretics, and there were very few of them. There were a group called Gnostics, and that's another whole topic, but the Gnostics believed that anything to do with the flesh or, the, or matter was evil. Only the spirit was good. So any, there's no way that God could turn body and blood into it. But they were extreme heresy. And so the early fathers all uniformly, consistently, all together in unison, this is the body and blood of Jesus. And it happens only at the hands of a priest. So I see, I see now that, that question that you were faced with when you said earlier in the interview and in your journey that you, you have to decide, is this Jesus' real flesh and blood or is it not? Because if you, if you read the New Testament in the context it was written within the early church, amongst those early church fathers, you, you just said now, and it's, it's, this is accurate, <laughs> they, they all were unanimous that this was... Uh, what we now call the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So the question is whether you are going to side with the early church in that decision, or if you're going to uh, side with what the with what the reformers uh, developed. Protesters. Let's right? call, let's call <laughs> so, them what they were. They were protesters, and what were they protesting against? Anything Catholic. They were protesting against anything Catholic, and they were rabid about it. I was. I have studied Luther a lot, and he was angry and rabid against the Catholic Church very early on. He was in protest, and they protested about anything that was distinctly Catholic. And I'm not going to follow them. I'm sorry. I'm going to follow the early Christians. Yeah, that's. I see. I I see that distinction. I see that question being being before the Christian believer. Right there is a clear uh, delineation between those two kinds of belief about that thing. Right. Exactly. Now here's another question. I, I don't have much time left. I know. But another question that I used to ask people, and a Catholic could very easily get asked this today, sitting next to someone on a plane, do you believe that your Mass is a sacrifice? Do you call it the holy sacrifice of the Mass? Yes. What is the sacrifice? It's Jesus Christ. He's present on the altar. Oh, really? Well, the Bible says four times that Jesus was crucified once and for all for sin. So why do you Catholics have a sacrifice of Jesus over and over and over and over again on your altars and your churches? I know why you Catholics do it, because you don't read your Bibles and you don't even know those verses are in there. And I used to do this with Catholics. I used to challenge them that way when I was an evangelist. I used to teach classes on how to convert Catholics. How does a Catholic answer that? Well, I, I'll do it very simply because I'm a simple man. And I don't have much time. But I just said, I realized when I went to my first Mass, January 1st of 1994, by the way, on Pentecost Sunday this year, we celebrated our 25th anniversary as Catholics, our whole family. 
we came into the church with six of us. Now we're 26 <laughs> with all the marriages and all the grandkids. Anyway, if you imagine that time and space is a bubble, God lives outside. He's eternity. He is existence. He doesn't live over there or over there. When he leaves there, he doesn't have to walk and take time to get over there. He lives in eternity. He's outside of space and time. We, however, live in this thing called space and time, the universe that he created. And I do have to walk from here to there, and it takes time. So what happens when it says that Jesus Christ is crucified once and for all before the foundations of the world? I realized when I sat in that mass that I was right. I had been right all along. Jesus was only crucified once and for all, but in space and time. 2,000 years ago at Calvary, and when I take my groups there, I say, go right up there now and reach down and touch the top of the altar, under the altar. That's the top of Calvary. And if you were to touch that 2,000 years ago, your hands would come up sticky with his blood. He died once and for all in space and time 2,000 years ago on the hill of Calvary in Jerusalem. But... God is outside of space and time. For God, everything is an eternal event. When God looks, he sees Jesus crucified. And then verse that we used to quote all the time in the Bible as Protestants, and this is the way it's translated in the King James Version and the NIV. I know most Catholic Bibles don't translate it this way, but the Bibles I was raised with and learned to memorize, Revelation 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. If he was crucified only once and for all in Jerusalem, how could he have been crucified before the foundations of the world? And then I read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, if you sin, go to the Father. You have an advocate with the Holy Spirit and the Father, because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. Not that he was, but right today when I read that passage, it's telling me that right at this moment, Jesus is my sacrifice. And then in John chapter 5, verse 5, John is looking in the book of Revelation into the future, and he says, I looked into the heavens, and I saw a lamb before the throne of God. I saw a lamb standing, yet slain. He sees a lamb that has been killed, a Passover lamb. His throat is slit. The lamb should be dead, but the lamb is standing on an altar in front of the throne of God. My favorite painting, one of my favorite paintings, is called The Adoration of the Lamb. It's in Ghent, Belgium by Van Eck, and I even went there to see it. It's such an amazing. Just do a search called The Adoration of the Lamb on Google, and there's an out in the field, an altar, and a lamb, a majestic lamb is standing on the altar, and his throat is slit open, and blood is gushing out of his throat into a chalice on the altar. That is Jesus Christ. When God wakes up in the morning, I wrote a blog about this to my website, by the way, it's catholicconvert.com, catholicconvert.com. And I did, I wrote a, a blog and it's, I don't remember the exact title, but it's what does God see when he wakes up in the morning? What's the first thing God sees when he wakes up in the morning? He wakes up and he sits on his stone, yawns and asks for his coffee. And right there in front of him is Jesus, the sacrifice on the altar, the lamb with the blood gushing out of that's what God sees, because that sacrifice of Christ is ever eternally before the eyes of God, because it's an eternal event. And what happens at the Mass is not another sacrifice. It's not another time we sacrifice Christ. It's that one eternal sacrifice, which is before the throne of God, that comes back into that big bubble of space and time, and he makes that sacrifice of Christ present for us again today, because we need it. The Father said it's the medicine of immortality, that by which we live. Just like Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have life in you. And every day, knowing that I need it as much as the early Christians, he makes that present, that sacrifice comes right down, boop, into the space and time onto the altar, and we partake of eternity. Not another sacrifice of Christ, but that one eternal sacrifice of Christ. I'll close with this. When I was a Baptist, we used this first song I learned how to play on my harmonica when I was a kid. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, wait a minute. For a Protestant, where is the blood? There's no blood. The blood of Jesus came down from the cross and it washed out into the out down into the Dead Sea eventually. So where is the blood? But we as Catholics, we have the blood. The blood of Jesus is on the altars for us every day. We can partake of it. It washes us from our sins. It feeds us. It heals us. We as Catholics have the blood on the altar. And that's why I'm a Catholic. 
<laughs> I don't know if it was in, in your book or somewhere else. It may well have been in Crossing the Tiber, one of the first books that I read when I was on my own journey. But that idea that the Mass is this outside of time and space thing that brings back, that brings us uh, into the Room of the Last Supper and right in front of the cross... That I think yes. I think I wept when I first read that because how much more of a gift from God was that than what I was doing, which you were doing, was this you know maybe once a month, maybe once, maybe four times a year, um, passing around the communion tray kind of thing. How much more yes. incredible was what God actually gave us this time and space bending thing, right? And this is the way we should view it, is that this is an eternal event. Whether you want to view it, that that event comes down to us, and we are partakers of it here on earth, or whether we're transported into heaven, and we're partaking of the great liturgy and the sacrifice of Christ in heaven, either one works. And I agree with you, that when you read the Old Testament, and it talks about the manna that comes down from the wilderness, the Passover lamb, all of the images of the Eucharist, when you get there, it can't the whatever this is foreshadowing, whatever it's prefiguring, has to be better and greater and grander and stronger than what was happening in the Old Testament. And the Eucharist is because it's the very body and blood of Christ. If we say it's just crackers and grape juice, that is much less than what was happening in the Old Testament. The New Covenant is weaker. It is not as substantial. The Catholic Church is right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Steve. This has been an absolute pleasure. Is there? You've mentioned your website a couple of times. I think I think people have got that. That'll be in the show notes. Um, anything else you want to let them know about what you're up to to find more information about you? Well, uh, Catholic Convert is the main web, the main hub. Everything I do, when you get on that site and get it, it goes out to other websites. For example, what I really do most of my life is lead pilgrimages. That's footprintsofgod.com but you can get to it from Catholic Convert. And we lead pilgrimages seven times a year to Israel. We just got back from the shrine, saints and shrines of France. What we're doing now, we have only 10 seats open for Poland in August. We're going to go see all the modern saints, John Paul II, Maria Faustina, Maximilian Kolbe, wonderful country, wonderful trip. That's August to Poland. And first week of December, we're taking a group to Italy. And that is going to be an Advent trip to Italy, and I'm going to show you the beauty of Italy and the glory of Christianity and the Church there. We're going to see Eucharistic miracles, the face cloth of Christ that was on his face in Montepello. We're going to spend time two days in Assisi, and that's a great trip, so you can come on that one with us. And um, we've also got trips to Lourdes and Fatima coming up, and... Um, Holy Land Part 2. Anybody that's been to Holy Land, seen the main sites, come with me on Holy Land Part 2 in Jordan. I'm going to show you things that nobody else sees over there. So Catholic Convert is my site. I'm finishing up a book on Genesis this year. That'll be book number six. And we've made all the movies. If you want to go visit these lands in person, kind of through, through video, I've gone through all these countries. I do the life of Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Mary, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and the Apostolic Fathers. Got one more to go in 2021, Doctors of the Church. But uh, I figured there's a lot to be done, and I can sleep when I get to heaven. <laughs> That's wonderful. And you know, I've, I've followed your blog for a long time, and you post all kinds of inf information on that website, and even some of the pictures and videos from some of those uh, pilgrimages that you've been on. And it's just fantastic to see those sites from the Bible in not I mean not in person if you're watching it on a video you've posted, but to be able to go there in person. Those are that's such a fantastic thing to see those places as real places fixed in time. I think that's just a, an amazing thing to experience. I think it was on your site when I first heard I think it was the Lord's Prayer, maybe in Aramaic, I think you had filmed that yeah. at one point with a with a tour guide. That was in incredible. Yep, we do that every time we take a group to Bethlehem, my friend speaks Aramaic, and he sings and chants the Our Father in the language of Jesus. You know, the reason I do this, and then I'll let you go, but the reason I do this is because most people never get a chance to go to these lands and see these places for themselves. And I go and do that both through pilgrimages and through the movies. And by the way, every pilgrimage I've taken, we do 10 or 11 every year. Every one of those is on my website, and I put 15 minutes of video up every day on that. You can actually go back and watch join a virtual pilgrimage to Lourdes and Fatima, to all through Italy. St. Paul cruises through Greece and Turkey, Israel. You can actually watch these movies, and I'm narrating them as we go along. 
And yes, that, uh, it's called the fifth gospel, the Holy Land. And we do hear the Our Father in Aramaic. You can go on my website and hear it right now. That's incredible. Hey, thank you so much for sharing with us today, for being here. This is an amazing blessing to me, to all of our listeners, and I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Keith. God bless you. God bless. Good work. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation that Steve and I had. I hope it was edifying and encouraging, and I hope you learned something new. Visit Steve's website at catholicconvert.com to find out more about him and the work that he's doing. Visit my website, thecordialcatholic.com, for show notes, my blog, and more information about the show. Make sure you subscribe to this show wherever you find your podcast, and if you can leave a review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. All of your reviews help push the podcast to new people and help new listeners discover this show. I really appreciate that especially. Visit The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter. And send any feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. If you love this show and want to support it, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where even $1 a month helps to support the show, keep the lights on, and keep things moving. I really appreciate your financial support. It helps make these shows possible. Thank you so much to those already supporting the show, and thank you for your prayers and fasting as well. I love to hear from listeners. Please send me emails, comments on Facebook, or Twitter as well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you, see you next week, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.